So I'm going to talk tonight about the connection and the interplay between samadhi and wisdom, between the collected and unified heart and mind, and uh, how it supports wisdom, and how wisdom in turn supports the development of the collected and unified heart and mind. And then they sort of seesaw back and forth, uh, supporting each other, helping each other develop. And up until this point of the retreat, we really have been focusing on what it's like to keep collecting and unifying the heart and mind as our sort of primary task of this form of meditation, leaning more in that direction, just what's it like to keep inviting our hearts and our minds to be more whole, more collected, less disturbed, less distracted. And that takes a type of wisdom that you all have been learning so that you can support yourself in that, so that you don't have to depend on external sources, but inside, as you gain an experience, you have an internal um, compass heading, an internal um, set of experiences, a set of your own wisdom to learn how to do that. And so you've been talking yourself out of wandering minds, for example, and that takes some wisdom. A really seductive thought comes up, and rather than being seduced by it, Wisdom comes up and says, you know, actually it's not so important. I'm going to practice not now to that thought. And then you come back and recollect on the breath or whatever object you've been collecting on. And so that's wisdom playing the supporting role for the development of uh, this collectedness. We develop collectedness, uh, one part, to develop wisdom all the way along become more liberated from our attachments, from our cravings, from the agitation of the mind. So that's already liberating us. But then once we have a more collected and unified heart and mind, we have a better chance at seeing life more clearly and from that developing uh, more wisdom. And that wisdom has a better chance of freeing us from our confusion, freeing us from habits and patterns that we normally believe in and therefore stay somewhat uh, um, seduced by or in the rounds of confusion, thinking we understand things clearly, but we don't, and yet we don't know that. And so certain habits and patterns uh, keep flourishing because of our underlying understanding. And as that improves, we can liberate ourselves from these patterns. And that's something that gets uh, supported by the collected and unified heart and mind. So. We've been talking how wisdom can support this process of collect, collection and unification. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about how we use that collected and unified heart and mind to uh, point our attention in certain areas that um, as that wisdom develops and deepens, there's a greater chance for liberation, a greater chance for freedom from the underlying habits and patterns that uh, keep us agitated just want to do another sound check. How are you guys in the back? Has it gotten soft again? Great. So <clears throat> here's a, a, an analogy, a send-off analogy. <clears throat> um, there's this uh, aquarium that's been built in Georgia. How many people know about the massive aquarium in Georgia? A few people. It's so incredibly massive. It's, I think, larger than this room maybe a couple of times larger in this room. It's quite huge. And they have so many fish in it. And with the fish in that tank, with given so much room, that they, rather than going, as, instead of being captive fish, they behave more naturally like they would, you would if you saw them out in the wild because they have that much more room to move around in. It's much more like their natural habitat than if you saw the same fish in a much smaller cage, a much smaller tank. It's quite beautiful, and I stumbled across this video of seeing it. I was really mesmerized by this um, internal beauty and order. And it reminded me of a very beautiful opportunity I had to um, go scuba diving in Belize once, in one of the great uh, coral reefs that they have on the planet is in Belize. And there's one area where they kept the boats away from, so the boats are not passing through this one area. So if you came down in the water, the fish and the turtles and the sharks and the lobsters and everything um, was in its natural order. 
it's amazing how peaceful that natural order looks. Um, when you can get right in the middle of it, schools of fish going by, beautiful natural order, and a type of harmony, even though it's complex with many different beings passing through that part of the, the ocean. So this tank in Georgia is a lot like that, and you can start to see how the fish naturally school, how they pass by each other, seeing that they're not all terrified of the sharks all the time, just when the sharks get in that particular mood. <clears throat> but from their instruction in that mood, everybody's floating along pretty nicely. That's a type of harmony that we develop as we settle the heart and mind. It finds a type of natural, complex harmony but that complexity isn't confusing. There's something quite beautiful that arises out of it. Even with many, many different facets, there's a sense of internal harmony. And as the sukha factor, the jhana factor of sukha begins to ripen in us, you might feel that type of well-being. You might feel a type of uh, internal harmony with the way things are. So that's one of the sort of the directions that samadhi can take us. If you had <clears throat> a lot more fish in a much smaller tank, and if that tank was agitated, you'd never see the underlying order of things. You'd only see the fish responding to the agitation. And if you tried to understand fish in an agitated tank, uh, all you'd see them is being stressed and responding to a stressful environment. Most of us, because in daily life we are stirred up, we've come to know ourselves in a more agitated, less harmonious state. And we call that normal. And our best day is one where we get to taste a little bit of calm, a little bit of harmony, but uh, maybe not a lot of it. And so we don't really know what we're like when our hearts and minds come into this more uh, beautiful, organic um, uh, contentment, peace, well-being that's possible. So as... Uh, um, I used to be trained in the sciences. Um, I say I used to be a scientist. I, I still am a scientist, but I used to be one too. <clears throat> and when I was more used to being a scientist, um, a lot of science is just in that, um, that intimacy of observing how things actually are. And that's what samadhi allows us to do. It allows us to come in in a less agitated state and see things as they actually are. See whatever we're encountering as it actually is without uh, being so disturbed by it, for or against it, or being so restless that we don't really have a beautiful, true, intimate relationship. So we learn only to the degree that we are actually connected to our, our experience. And so in this way, samadhi gives us a chance to deepen our wisdom because it stabilizes our heart and our mind in connection to the world around us. And from that we can see things much more clearly than if we're triggered or if we're agitated. I was in, um, <clears throat> I was in a very busy, pressured responsibility state um, a couple of months ago. And from that state of being, I, I, was being very, I was being responsible, I was keeping up with it, but I was definitely starting to take on a lot. and. Um, and then a crisis happened in the middle of it, and all of a sudden I got overwhelmed. And in the middle of being overwhelmed, what I heard people saying had a lot more um, edge to it. I felt criticized in the middle of it. And then I was able to calm myself down a few minutes later and revisit the memory and revisit the people. And I was like, no, I didn't say that at all. Or I said those words, but that wasn't my tone. Or I didn't mean that tone. So I wasn't seeing things as it was, but. I didn't know at the time. I thought I was actually seeing things clearly when I was under all that pressure and um, being overly stimulated. So I was responding to the world from a place of confusion and didn't know it. But just, I knew the hallmark. I knew I, knew I was pressured, so I knew not to take it too seriously over with experience because some wisdom had been developed. But I knew I wasn't seeing things clearly and I was able to calm down some then I was able to hear what people were saying. I was able to take their feedback and we were able to work uh, more closely on the project we were sharing. But that broke down as I got more stirred and agitated. So in that way, developing samadhi, even in daily life, 
we can see things more clearly, where, as people have said earlier, this word unflappable can happen. You may not feel unflappable on this retreat, you might feel quite flappable. <laughs> but that's usually the period of training. The period of training, you're going deeper in, you're really allowing your attention to come into the mind as it is, and welcoming it to be calm. But you'll see when you leave here how uh, much calm you actually have developed. And then what it's like to be in the world without being pushed around by experiences, being able to be intimate so you're not cut off, but not pushed around. And you can just see things that you couldn't see before because there was too much confusion, too much agitation. And from that, wisdom sharpens, it clarifies, because you're not confused, you're not agitated. You can see things more clearly. There's also a chance for more than just sort of ordinary calm and well-being when we start to get actually quite um, uh, deeper in our samadhi than we've been before. When we know a lot more well-being than we've known before, a lot more stability of mind, then we have a chance to see things uh, much more clearly, kind of radically clear. And that begins to, cha- to deeply change our understanding of how things are. So there's this samadhi that helps sort of general wisdom and helps you just be a better citizen in the world, a better partner, friend, uh, whatever you are in the world. But there's a type of samadhi that when it deepens, you can actually see things more clearly. And it's a, m- a more radical uh, clarity. Not many of us know the person who developed the telescope. Not many people have memorized that person's name. Does anybody know the name of the person who developed the telescope? Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) But how many of you have heard of Galileo? Galileo. Okay, so Galileo in Europe, uh, maybe 500 years ago. Someone developed the power of a telescope, but Galileo pointed it in an important direction. So rather than just using the telescope to look across a valley and see a tree more clearly, which is beautiful. But you can also see that tree more closely. It's just with a telescope, you don't have to be close to it. What Galileo did is he pointed that telescope up into the heavens and he saw things that no human eye had seen before. Because of that heightened awareness that was given by the telescope applied to an important area, we had a massive paradigm shift and at the time, that paradigm shift was quite disturbing. The common view, even if you're sensitive to the world around you, the common view is that the world is flat, it's quite large, the sun is smaller, looks like it's about the same size as the moon, and <clears throat> it obviously is a thing that's moving. That's common view. With heightened view, because you can see things much more clearly, you can see the evidence that that's not the case. And that takes a huge paradigm shift. We are all comfortable now with that paradigm shift, so it's hard to imagine how confusing it was, how unbelievable it was 500 years ago when the news started coming out that there was proof that the earth was not the big thing, it was not the flat thing, and that there were bigger things than us, and we went around them, we went around the sun. So with a slightly heightened view, Galileo saw the four moons of Jupiter, He saw the phases of Venus, which no human eye had seen before. And he saw texture on the moon that you can't see with a normal eye. And from that, he knew that the heavens were not as they had thought. And from that, they were able to deduce that uh, there's actually the sun at the center of our solar system. And it caused a massive paradigm shift. On this side of the paradigm shift, we're all comfortable with it. It doesn't throw us, it actually thrills us. I mean, for many of us, I just love uh, seeing the pictures of Hubble telescope. So on this side of the paradigm shift, we've grown up with it or we're not as disturbed by it. But at one point it wasn't the common view. So this is where samadhi, stilling the mind, having it be less reactive, seeing things as they actually are. And the phrase uh, in Pali is yata, bhuta, jnana, dasana, the insight into how things actually are. That is not the common view. We think we're thinking 
seeing things clearly, and then we see them much more clearly, and we realize, wow, I actually had that all wrong. So there are a few things that are quite classic to see and to point your concentrated heart and mind, develop intimacy, develop understanding, that the Buddha saw were the root of our confusion. So if we have common view, no matter how much we try to be happy, no matter how much we try to be at peace, we keep stumbling because common view sees the world one way, but things are actually not that way. So one very common view is in the permanence of things, the non-changing nature of things. We so, if I asked you all, do things change? we would all nod our head and say yes, because we've learned intellectually that's the case, and we have some experience to say that's the case. But we get startled when we run into changes that take us by surprise, or things that I didn't want to change suddenly change, and I have a more emotional response to the fact that I wanted it to be permanent, even though intellectually I know that it's impermanent. So I've, um, I used to be a ceramicist. I guess I'm still a ceramicist, but I also used to be a ceramicist. And when I would make these pots, I would love them. And because they were made and they were fired, they'd be quite strong. And yet they're not meant to last forever. But it feels that way when you first make them because they feel pretty strong. But then they chip, they crack, they get dropped, things happen to them. And then there's sadness around that. I now have some favorite ceramic tea mugs that have been made by hand. But I know they're impermanent. And I make sure that I know that they're impermanent. Because if I find myself leaning into their permanence, even though it's temporarily pleasant, it's a setup for the inevitable change that's coming. So they are slowly changing, and at one point they will quickly change. And that's a wise relationship to ceramic mugs. (laughs) It's a wise relationship to these glasses that I have. It's a wise relationship to this body I have. It's a wise relationship to the building we're in. It's a wise relationship to all the people I love. To know that people are often, the world is often in slowly changing form that we call stability, but it's not stability. It's just in its slow changing nature. And that all things are subject in their slow changing nature towards an eventual falling apart. So that's sort of like, (gasps) yeah, everything's sort of heading in that direction. And at one point that can happen quickly, the falling apart. That's the way things actually are. And we all know that. So if I check, if I ask you to check the box, are things permanent or impermanent? We're like, okay, let's check the impermanent box. But emotionally, we're hoping things are permanent. And when they change, that's where some suffering comes in. I've been watching my father age for a while, since I was quite young. Um, and it's heightened my awareness since this path of actually saying, of saying, I better learn this earlier because I think it's actually going to be quite upsetting when I see him older and then when he eventually passes away. So in anticipation of that, I'm not forcing something onto him that isn't true. I'm not getting ghoulish about the fact that he's aging and will die. It's not morbid. I'm just knowing him more intimately then my common view, which might not know him very clearly, and then suddenly be surprised as he ages, suddenly be sort of disoriented when he's aging, when he ages. It's just been a very steady intimacy, pointing my intimacy, pointing my understanding in an important direction so that I don't end up setting myself up for, uh, towards the type of confusion and grief as I watch him get older. The same with my mom and my stepfather, watching them get older. As Galileo pointed his telescope at the stars, the Buddha asks us to point our samadhi in the direction of change. So we develop samadhi, and then we rest that mind in the experience of change. And that deepens our experiential relationship to change, not our intellectual. And we're not going to just visit change and then go back to the permanent world. We want to actually become more and more intimate with the field of change so that it becomes second nature. 
there was a time <clears throat> when you were very young and you would have heard sounds coming out of my mouth, but you would not have understood English. If you're learning a second language, you, you, more, uh, you can remember that process. It, you can hear sounds, but no understanding arises from them, except you can tell it's a human voice. And if sec English is your second language, you're maybe still in that process, or if you've been to a foreign country where you see that. <clears throat> but now, you cannot not hear the English, unless I mutter, <laughs> unless I'm not clear. You are hearing English, and it doesn't take effort. You're not focusing. It no longer takes that type of focusing. You're so familiar with English that it's an automatic perception. It's an automatic perception, so you no longer have to work at it, but that takes intimacy with English to make it that available so that you can't not hear the English. You couldn't go back to not hearing it. And then there's great facility in knowing English, because if you're in this country or you're uh, talking to English-speaking people, then understanding can come where there would have just been sound. That's what we need to do to ever-increasing degrees with change, with impermanence. We get to know it so intimately that it's second nature. We get to know it uh, like the back of our hand, better than the back of our hand. People say that, I've looked at the back of my hand, and I actually don't know it that well. <laughs> as well as I've known it my whole life, I often find things I've never seen before. So, uh, and that's the nature of change. But you want, you want to be so intimate with change that it's how you perceive things. So, that, because of common view, we get away with permanence. And so for, in the beginning, it's something we visit, put down, we visit, we put down. Life shows us, we learn a little bit, we put it down. In common view, there's a general growing of our understanding, but it's not a radical understanding. It's not a full translation into the field of change. So, as that develops, at first it takes some work, some investigation, but then it becomes more and more intrinsic to just how you perceive the world. It's a world of change. There are slowly changing things and quickly changing things, but there are no non-changing things. That happens to be true, and if you point the intimacy of the steadiness of your attention into your experience of the world, what you feel in, in uh, response is the changing nature of the world. It would be a sort of like um, looking at a, a clock with hands, and it doesn't take much concentration to see the second hand moving. So that's common. Common view is like the second hand moves, but I have some doubts about the minute hand, and definitely that hour hand. I've looked at it, it doesn't move. Okay, but an hour later, look, it's like, wait, it did move. When did it move? Did it suddenly move? No, it's moving all along, just slowly. Common view can't catch the fact that things are changing slowly. So it, there's this unexamined assumption that slowly think, changing things are permanent, and I can get away with it. But then like the hour hand, you look, and it's changed, and you're disoriented if you thought it wasn't changing. But if you get really still, and you don't mind being still, then you actually can see the minute hand moving. And I've done this once just to prove it to myself, being really, really still and seeing if I could not be, if I could be non-distracted long enough to see an hour hand moving. To see the hour hand moving, you actually have to be quite still. And that's where things like we've been talking about, when you talk about uh, these deep absorptions, for example, or as your mind collects and stills, you can then see change on many levels. But if you're somewhat agitated, you have to just know that things are changing, but you'll never have the direct experience because you don't have enough stability of intimacy to see things changing slowly. This bell in front of me looks like it did a year ago. So I could say, yeah, it's not changing. And I would get away with that for a long time. But there will come a point where this bell won't be here and something will happen to it. And if I've dependent on it not changing, it's disorienting.
okay, that's a bell. But what about my parents? What about this body? What about other people I love? Can I mature my relationship to them? Just like the flat earth turning into a round earth going around the sun is perplexing, and now we're comfortable with it, you can get comfortable with change. You can get comfortable with the aging process. You can get comfortable with the dying process. So much so that it, it no longer is a source of disorientation, fear, but it actually it sweetens the ride. It really sweetens the ride to know that it's not permanent. I learned that when I was doing a year of hospice work. And at first it was a huge paradigm shift to not see the aging and dying process as only a place of grief and disorientation, but to look at people who had learned to sing at the bedside of people who were passing away, hold their hands, be there at the last breath, to see people who were dying and they knew when they took their last breath there'd be somebody who was not afraid, who could be there with them. So a type of loneliness wasn't there. On the hospice ward is a very beautiful seasoned volunteers were not afraid of the dying process. They'd come to terms with it. They didn't have a, a shallow relationship to it. They had a deepened relationship to it. So if you deepen your relationship to change, that change leads in an aging direction, eventually in a falling apart direction. It's scary at first. It goes against the common view. It goes against our hopes. But as we become more comfortable with it, it we find that we actually can settle into it. And then as the paradigm shifts, there's a recognition of the loss, but that recognition also feels beautiful like really seeing the, the arc of someone's life, whether it was short or long. You have the capacity of heart and mind to be mature enough to see that. So stabilizing your heart and mind, pointing it in the direction of change. This is one, where, one place the Buddha wanted us to deepen our intimacy, because if we don't deepen our intimacy there, we're confused and we get set up for a lot of grief and confusion when things we really hoped were permanent weren't. So again, Galileo pointed at the stars. We point our samadhi at the experience of change. How you do that <clears throat> is the basic practice we've been doing. It doesn't have to take a radically different uh, direction. If you've been with the breath, the breath, one of the reasons the breath is such a beautiful object to concentrate on is that it's very reliable. It's very experiential. You can rest within it. And all you have to do is change the perspective and you learn impermanence from the breath. And then if that gets too much and you start to uh, spin out from how much is changing, then you look back at it as it's, uh, as this stable friend. And so right there, you get to see both sides of these two things meeting, the benefit of samadhi and the benefit of seeing impermanence. And you can take your time going back and forth between the two. The more stable you are, you practice that for years or decades, then you become so stable that it doesn't take long on the other side of the equation to really deepen your understanding of change. So I know people who are doing that. They don't mind spending decades really developing the stability around breath because they already know that once they go into understanding impermanence, that it will be a very sort of deep immediate dropping in because they have that beautiful stability. Or you can pendulate back and forth between the two at whatever pace is interesting to you. That's how we normally teach uh, mindfulness and vipassana is letting the same experience uh, inform us on both sides of that equation, using the breath a little bit to settle down, seeing its impermanent nature, getting oriented around that, settling in, oh, here's the breath again, settling down, seeing its impermanent nature, just sort of following the breath down into both sides of that equation. Here, we've made it a little bit more distinct. So resting in the breath, collecting, unifying, and then from that same intimacy, of being with the breath and finding it reliable, 
the mind not so distracted, resting in and seeing all the changes that go on in one breath. Someone asked a question earlier about that, and I said you could look at my hand, and I could ask you to describe the color or the shape. The color reveals the shape, and the shape contains the color. And so both factors are in the same, your eyes are landing on the same place, but you can actually pick up different qualities without even changing your gaze. So that's why the breath is such a beautiful object for many reasons, but that's one of them. It's a great place for seeing change. It's a great place for developing samadhi. When we start looking at things like change, when we start looking at certain things that deepen our wisdom, that meditative practice we call vipassana, when we're collecting ourselves and we're using wisdom to collect ourselves to make the mind more useful, we've called those practices samatha. Samatha practices develop samadhi. Vipassana practices develop wisdom. So we're using the breath as a samatha practice. That's what we've been doing to collect and unify the mind. And now the invitation is to the degree that you find it interesting Bring your mind into that steady, intimate relationship with the breath. And then begin to see change. As you are intimate with that experience, you can watch your mind going through little changes. It's never perfectly stable. You watch the breath going through changes and you're starting to deepen your understanding, your, uh, your very intimate connection with the fluctuation of the breath. If you want, you can also turn your attention into the body and you can feel all that's going on, this body that I don't think is changing that much because I'm not that intimate with it. I could suddenly be very intimate with the body and feel there's actually nothing static in it. It all has a sense of slowly changing or quickly changing. This one area of change is sort of one of the gateway insights that as that deepens, other insights begin to mature. So this is one of the first ones to uh, settle down into, is getting intimate with a universe that's constantly in fluctuation, and it's just either slow or quick. As a joke, <clears throat> I was once talking to a group of people, meditators, and I asked them if they were presentarians or momentarians. What had they developed over the years? And they didn't really, there was new terminology. And so we, I was kind of just joking, but um, many of them were presentarians that they really liked being present. And so they found that when everything stabilized and they were in just the sense of the present being a very stable place to be, very happy, stable. And we jokingly called that presentarianism. <clears throat> No one else uses these words, and I probably won't after tonight, so we don't have to write it down. And <laughs> what is what's the whole new thing? What's what's the poly for that? <laughs> Presentarians, <clears throat> momentarians, actually is a whole nother. It takes a whole nother training to be a momentarian. Okay, you know, humor, humor aside, just if you could follow this into its seriousness. <laughs> Because things are changing so much, it often is why we're confused. It often is why there's so much um, agitation within us. So helping the mind be present and stable in the flow of present time experiences, that's often what samadhi feels like. It definitely is what the absorptions feel like. They feel very stable, very reliable. And then you wake up from them and interact with the world and think, wow, there's this beautiful stability. I feel stable in the present moment. And it's quite lovely. Uh, there is a, often a sense of uh, it being very divine or very rare, or very beautiful. With Vipassana practice, when we really start to look at things in their impermanent nature and watch them slowly or quickly change, watch the arising of new experiences, the passing of experiences, you learn that it's really, there's very little stability. There's a lot of flux a lot of fluctuations, but you can be stable within the fluctuations. It's not that you are outside the field of fluctuations. You are in the field of fluctuations. You are a field of fluctuations. But each moment you find yourself 
resting in that. This is where the five jhana factors become agile and they support you with delight, contentment, a type of one-pointedness in a very dynamic field. And you start waking up in the flow of moments. Here's a moment, here's a moment, here's a moment, here's a moment, here's a moment. And it's not confusing. And that can get quite rapid and it can get quite thorough. And yet, because the jhana factors have been developed, for a while they're quite stable, even when you go into a dynamic field. And that's the translation of these jhana factors over into the world of vipassana, becoming a momentarian. <clears throat> and Philip called this last night, this one teacher called them vipassana jhanas, when you get absorbed into this experience of change. The way you can invite yourself to do that is first stabilize your attention with the breath and you start to feel that familiar, hopefully by now more familiar sense of stability, contentment, the mind not so distracted, feeling whole, unified, collected. That's coming into flow at the present time. Then you begin perceiving the fact that you're not landing on a moment uh, a moment a moment ago. You're not landing on a minute ago. You're landing freshly in this moment, but that moment doesn't show up and stay. Even if it feels very similar to the one before it, it's actually a new moment. Now we can intellectually know that's true and still have the emotional relationship like, nah, it's pretty much the same thing. It's the same bell. You, if you look at this bell, fresh light is entering your eye. It's a fresh experience. So you go from the stability of the breath into realizing I'm having a fresh experience with it. These experiences of the breath are arising, but they're not arising to stay. Otherwise the room would be full of experiences of breathing. It would just keep piling up. It arises and then it's gone. Gone to never be found again. Where did it go? Here it is and there it's gone. I clap. Where'd it go? Where You can't find it. You'll never find it again, that clap. It's gone forever. So these things arise clean, and they pass away clean, and they arise clean, clean. So you can get into the arising of experiences, and then you turn and look at the passing of experiences. The same breath that was giving you stability is now giving you the same opportunity to watch arising of fresh experiences. And then you watch the passing of experiences. And then you can see, oh, it's all arising and passing. That's how you deepen your intimacy with arising and passing. It's very classic uh, in the language of the, um, the Buddha's discourses, watching things arise and pass, arise and pass, arise and pass. So I'm um, trying to describe this to a group of people um, and I was sort of blathering on like I am now, just talk, 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 talk. And I said, so many moments of life are just moments. And the crowd sort of laughed a little bit. And I was like, why, why was that funny? And I was like, oh, I basically said, you know, so many bricks are just bricks and so many moments of life are just moments. But <clears throat> all of life is just moments. There's no pause button and there are no real repeats. So every moment of life is a moment. If you orient towards that, it's not only novel and interesting, there's actually a great reduction in suffering because you're attuning to the way things actually are. That happens to be an area where some of our suffering flourishes because we don't live in moments. We don't have a relationship to moments, a relationship to the flow of moments. We want things to be hold onable, repeatable, stable. We want the comfort of that, and yet things are actually fluctuating, and you can become comfortable with that. So that's one of the basic first vipassana orientations, is watching things arise and pass, watching the changing nature of experience. But with, because you have now momentum with the breath as a concentration object, you don't actually have to look anywhere different it's just right when you're there breathing, and you can do that for 
you know, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, just every now and then you can actually say, let me become inter- intimate with this experience of change. The Pali word is anicca. Let me become intimate with anicca. I'll see if I can pick up this fact that everything's fresh and new, fresh and new. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's actually right here. It's been here all along. I just wasn't paying attention. Everything's fresh and new. It's fresh and new and it doesn't stay. It's not showing up and moving in. It's showing up and then it's gone and something else is coming. You can find the same thing this time of night with the crickets. They're very beautiful for teaching us. They have a long, they have a slower pulse and a fast pulse within that, the way that they create vibration and sound. Every cricket sound is a fresh cricket sound. So you can find the stability, the fact that they're, they're serenading us right now, and it's a field of changing objects. And that's within your grasp to deepen intimacy there. The change is not so fast that you can't catch it. It's not so slow that you can't see it. It's actually right in the range of meditative intimacy with the crickets. So is your breath, so are body sensations, and so is the activity of mind. I found those four places to be great places to watch arising and passing, sound, uh, mind, body and breath. Great areas to deepen your experience of, in, of uh, impermanence. This is just one of three characteristics that are very liberating. The other two you can explore also. The second one is around this word dukkha, which gets translated as either um, suffering or uns- the unsatisfactory nature of experience. So as much as we might obsess about the pleasures that might come from lunch, if you're actually intimate with the experience of lunch, you see there wasn't as much pleasure in there as my fantasy told me there would be. It was much better in fantasy than than in experience. Not that it was bad in experience, it just, it was there and then it was gone. So that's about as much pleasure as lunch can offer. You were there for it, you experienced it. You have a more true relationship to the non-lasting satisfaction of the things that we obsess about. You obsess about them, you get them, you don't have such an intimate relationship with them, then you're actually getting the pleasure out of the fantasy of the experience. But as you drop in to be intimate with the actual experience, you get to see how much satisfaction temporary experiences can really offer you. And then you adjust yourself down to having a more realistic relationship to experiences. They're still pleasant, many of them are still worth pursuing, but you know that they actually won't provide you with lasting happiness. You don't over-ask the experience to satisfy you. So you're less disappointed. That's uh, maturing in relationship to the dukkha nature of experience, that it only has so much satisfaction on the one hand, and no way of organizing your experience prevents you from having unpleasant experiences. They come in just like pleasant experiences. There's no way to stop them. So you mature your relationship to having unpleasant experiences. At first, that's upsetting. Why would you do that? Why would you mature your relationship to unpleasant experiences? Well, they happen to happen. And if you don't have a mature relationship to them, you'll have an immature relationship to them. I used to take young boys out uh, camping in Canada and they would have an immature relationship to unpleasant experiences for the first week. <laughs> and they would want to go home. And I was like, the Canadian wilderness is not going to change one bit, but you're going to start enjoying yourself. And that equation was incomprehensible to them. So I have to go home. The bugs, the rain, the food, where's my couch? Where's the hot water? Like, where's the television? It's an unpleasant experience. Well, it's, it's a real experience, but I promise me, if you stay after a week, it won't, you won't suffer as much. Not because Canada changed at all, but because they had a more mature relationship to it. Then, mosquitoes are things that you blow away, but they don't have to make you upset. Rain is something that gets you wet, but you don't have to have a bad day. In fact, you can start enjoying the rain. You can start enjoying the process of being out there. Then, it's wonderful to be out there, But again, not because Canada changed, 
you changed. We changed our relationship to dukkha. And on the other side of that equation, there's actually more joy than you can imagine. It's a, it's, it seems oxymoronic that as you get intimate with the fact that there's less pleasure than you thought in the world and you can't stop pain, when you mature that, it isn't only sobering and kind of stoic, okay, I'll be mature here. It actually starts to be a source of joy because you can take life as it is. Painful experiences happen, but they don't ruffle you. You're more intimate, you're more interested in the actual experience. And then the Canadian wilderness is an incredible place to be present because you can tolerate the ups and downs, but then you get all the wilderness to learn from. So maturing your relationship to dukkha, either the dukkha that pain arises, which is one form, or the dukkha that there's limited satisfaction in changing objects. That's within reach. It's within reach of your practice. It's another place to point your intimacy that you've developed through samadhi. Have uh, vichara and vitaka through lunch. Connect and sustain through the lunch experience. And you'll see what food can actually do for you. Connect and sustain yourself through a chocolate bar. Connect and sustain yourself through the whole process of falling in love, the whole honeymoon period, and your first fight. Then you get to see, oh, that honeymoon period wasn't a reality. It was a flow of moments that uh, was very ebullient, was very beautiful, definitely worth having, but I didn't land anywhere that was real. It's just things got more complex and I'm open to that. I can deal with the ups and downs of life. Then you get to have a relationship as opposed to looking for another honeymoon experience. I'm, going to, I'm moving quickly through these other two. They grow out of Anicca, so that's the one I wanted to spend more time on. But you can, in the middle of uh, being very intimate and steady with your experience from Samadhi, you can deepen your intimacy in a place that grows important wisdom. And this is the wisdom the Buddha wanted us to cultivate. It's very hard to do that, again, if we're agitated or distracted. We have a partial relationship to the realities of life, but not a deep, steady, intimate one. The third one can be a little bit more elusive, and that's the characteristic of non-self. Because everything is changing, it turns out that we're changing all the time too. And we don't have actually a wise relationship to ourselves as selves. We have a, a good enough, a common view of ourselves, but we don't have a deeply wise one. So you can point the flow of your intimacy, the stability of your heart and mind, into the experience of being a self, of being an individual. What's the first-hand inside experience of being you? One thing that you can see is how much your mind generates your story and is trying to keep track of your story, is trying to organize your story so it makes sense, is trying to improve your story. So the burden of being you as, um, as the burden of a self trying to navigate its way through life, that's a common view. It's so common that everybody has it and wouldn't even know to question it. But from within the experience of being you, you can actually watch I'm generating this whole story. I'm generating a lot of it. When I was younger, I was um, much more afraid of public speaking. And at this camp where I used to take these boys canoeing, um, I knew that eventually one day I would have to um, stand in front of 100 people and tell the story of the whole summer. And I used to be so sick to my stomach about having to do that. And it never happened. I never had the opportunity. <laughs> but I died a thousand times imagining what that was going to be like. And I prepared myself years in advance for what that would be like and how I would get through that experience. And it never happened. It, I never had to have that. But now one of my jobs is to publicly speak. <laughs> and I never prepared for that. Um, so all that wasted self, all that wasted self I was polishing and preparing for and trying to get it right didn't happen. And then the self that I ended up being 
I didn't prepare for as all at all, <laughs> but I had to be him, and uh, here I am now in front of you, um, being me. And I inherited this temple. I didn't choose him. You know, I, there are some theories say that I did, that I scripted the whole life. I'm not sure if that's true. My experience is I inherited me, and I, I have some questions whether that was a good choice. <laughs> because he's got some interesting attributes, but he also has some pretty strange habits that uh, haven't changed as easily as I would have wanted. So, me and Temple, we're getting better friends over time, but um, I'm within him, and I'm watching him. I'm watching the experience of him, and I'm watching the experience of being me. And I just didn't have much of a map around what it meant to be in me, watching me. But as my samadhi has deepened, my stability of being intimate within myself, I can watch how much I'm having uh, erroneous self-construction and how much of my self-construction is actually helpful. So if uh, Philip, Sally, and Adrian said, you know, let's uh, meet for lunch tomorrow, okay, I can self that and I can do that. That's healthy selfing. You know, you pick a time and a date and you meet there. So that's some self-construction. But all the extra stuff, I wonder what shirt I should wear, if they like me, they don't like me, da -dee, da -da -da. all that is unhealthy selfing. If you see it as unhealthy selfing, you're more likely to be able to step out of it. But if you don't see it as unhealthy selfing, you're going to get wrapped up in it. There again, you're with the breath, and there's the mind is showing you over and over and over, when it's not with the breath, it's probably selfing. And so by being with the breath, stabilizing, and then being intimate enough to see what are your patterns? What little uh, patterns do you draw inside yourself about yourself? And are they helpful? Are they constructive? More and more you learn you could do a lot less of it and you'd probably be okay. But the common view is you actually should do more of it and you better get your game straight. So we bring in stress to it, like work this thing out from the inside by hook or by crook, I will make this a better experience of being me. This is not, this path is not self-improvement. It's uh, much more about self-understanding than self-improvement. And often as you have a better relationship to the self within, the experience of being you, it tends to work out better. It's less pressured to be something it's not. So we relax with the breath. We see all this pattern of being of ourselves being kind of either enthralled or afraid of ourselves. We relax that, come out of that orientation. Then we find actually the, the being who is left over, unburdened by all that selfing, is pretty sweet. Tends to be tender, tends to be humble, tends to be present, tends to be well-intended. That's kind of our basis when we take off this pressure of selfing a lot of people find that there's just a better experience of being you. You can take this even further back, not just the self as you are, your attributes, who you are, who other people experience you, but this very private experience inside of the one who this life is happening to. And through samadhi, quieting the heart, quieting the mind, when you're not caught up in all that selfing and you become quite quiet, you can then begin to ask, who's witnessing this? And do I think it's a noun? Do I think it, there's a, it feels like there's a noun inside. It feels like there's a lasting somebody who's witnessing this whole thing, who's afraid it won't work out well, who's really glad when it did work out well. There's a guy in there, and he doesn't have this nose and this hair color, but there's a very private internal being in there, witnessing it all, experiencing Temple's ride. But unexamined, I kind of take him as this sort of very internal me. But when I quiet down a lot of the self-construction, and I begin to point my intimacy, who is not who like it has a name, but in the experience of being in samadhi with the breathing, in that very experience I can say, 
Is there a noun witnessing this? Or is the witnessing an activity? Where is there the being inside? Or is it all fluctuating and witnessing is just a part of the journey? Oh my God, there's actually nobody home. <laughs> but it's very active inside and it presents itself fairly coherently, but it's not actually static. So that's another way to draw this investigation towards, in calm moments, drawing it back in and becoming intimate with who is this being inside to which all this life is happening? And is that being a part of the ride? Or is that being experiencing the ride? Common view, it just feels very intrinsic that there's somebody home. The actual experience of going there is that whatever you feel inside is a part of the ride. It's not the passenger. Your internal being is just a part of what's bubbling up. So when you have that relationship, at first it's disorienting because it's not the common view. Then it's very relieving because there's no burden of who you're supposed to become. This, there's no being who's going to endure the full lifespan of my life. There's just a momentarian inside who's hearing. And then that momentarian has been replaced with another momentarian who's here. It's just strangely coherent. It's not so random that I'm different people different days. But there's no burden of anything lasting, even a sense of self, even a sense of lasting self. That one, for a lot of people, gets a little, gets so um, ephemeral that it's like, I don't know if I could make use of that one. But you might see at times, you're with the breath, quiet moment. You don't have to go in and untangle it. You just have to be intimate with this internal sense of the me inside. And through that intimacy, you see, oh, there's a lot of fluctuation in there. And then the paradigm shifts. Like again, Galileo looking at Jupiter, Galileo looking up at the sky. We look inside and we come into a better relationship with things as they actually are. What we lose is misunderstanding. From the view of misunderstanding, it feels like we're losing a lot. But when we lose the misunderstanding, we wake up to the way things actually are. And it's quite beautiful. Again, I, I, I draw to your imagination what we've seen through the Hubble telescope. And no, we're not at the center of it all, but it's so beautiful. No, things don't last. And on the other side of maturing there, it's beautiful. And no, no one thing is gonna satisfy you. But on the other side of that equation, it's quite beautiful. And no, there's nobody home. There is no lasting me. And on the other side of that equation, it's beautiful. That's liberation. It's not heavy, it's not sad. It's sad from the previous view. But in the realized view, it's uh, immense with its joy, with its peace, with what it offers. So these are the three characteristics that the Buddha asked us to point towards. And there are other, you can point your samadhi towards the Four Noble Truths. You could point them in many directions. In the profundity, in the capacity of love, you can point your samadhi in so many beautiful directions. But tonight I wanted to draw out this sort of classic list of three characteristics that are a part of all experience. That experiences arise and pass, that there's momentary satisfaction if it doesn't last, and that there's not a coherent lasting self. And you can actually get there, and it's easier to get there from steady intimacy with the breath as a basis, then it's actually, it's, you're right in the neighborhood of turning your intimacy from within in these directions and beginning to uh, feel the actual way things are. That's within reach and that's what samadhi offers us. 
Without samadhi, it's just too chaotic, and we get glimpses, but they don't deepen, and they don't allow uh, much transformation. It's very slow. But with samadhi, you're in the ballpark of having these beautiful possibilities of deepening your intimacy with these three characteristics. Uh, Let's sit for a bit. Letting the world, the words settle, yet hopefully some inspiration to be delighted about the journey you're on. And using that joy to be a basis for willingness to settle in, to simplify the mind, the heart, to invite it to be collected at rest, at peace, with his experience of breathing in and out. to do is at times see that you're always in a fresh experience, right in that breath. Enjoy your explorations. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.